So if you've got Jude, uh, we'll read from verse uh, 17 through to verse um, 24. I will read on through to verse 25. Okay, this is the word of God. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having uh, the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and that some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Friends, we are nearing the end of our study of Jude. Uh, Six more verses to go, but we're not quite at the end yet. Uh, Jude, as you know, has spent the greater part of this letter urging his readers to contend for the faith. That's what they need to be doing because certain men have crept in uh, to the fellowship. Uh, They have uh, crept in unnoticed, they've crept in unannounced, unheralded, and yet they are doing uh, damage to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude then goes on from verse 5 all the way through to verse 19 to explain why this is such a problem. And we've seen how Jude uh, quotes from the Old Testament And he quotes from extra-biblical sources. And in doing so, he applies those quotes and sources directly to those to whom he he writes. And although we're reading this almost 2,000 years later, what we have been discovering as we have studied this little uh, letter is just how applicable it is to the experiences of our day. Now, we shouldn't be surprised about that because a reading of church history makes it perfectly clear that with it, that with uh, every great advance for the sake of the truth of the gospel, there have been those who have sought to come in and undermine it. And often in a way that is uh, duplicitous, in a way that is secretive in a way that it is here unnoticed. Uh, Were it not for the fact that God had sent uh, prophets and teachers of the Bible to alert God's people to what was going on and what they were facing. So, having explained to them what it is and why it is so important, it's only now that he begins to ask Well, how are we going to be able to handle this predicament? So it's as he draws this letter to a close that he starts to make his point. 
And so just let's pause there for a second and say, it's almost inevitable that there would have been some people who were reading this letter who, when the exhortation comes to contend for the faith, would have found themselves immediately fearful and hesitant. You know, the kind of people who might, out of uh, respect to their personality, would say, well, that's just not me. You know, I'm not that type of person. I don't like confrontation. I don't like to be like that, and I don't want to be like that. Therefore, such individuals needed to be prompted. They need the prompting and the urging of, uh, of what this letter uh, brought home to them by the Holy Spirit because uh, they may have been tempted actually to tolerate the error. You know, I don't want to confront it, I'll tolerate it. Uh, now, that's not beyond the realms of possibility because some within the contemporary church actually operate on a similar basis. You know, uh, they would say there's no reason for us to be so vehement uh, in our opposition to, uh, to these people. You know, let's just deal with it by being a bit more loving and a bit more tolerant. And others would say, well, like, let's just deal with it by um, withdrawing. You know, just, just let's take ourselves off into our own little corner. The battle's too great. Uh, we're fearful. We don't like contention, and so we'll just exit, and we'll um, you know do our own little thing in our own little corner. Doubtless there were some like that, and surely there are some like that now. However, on the other side, okay, because there's always two sides, isn't there? On the other side, if such fearful individuals needed to be um, propped up. There are some who by nature find themselves uh, contentious and need to be calmed down a little bit. So you get people who by nature are a wee bit more timid. You get others who are a bit more sort of in your face. Um, and so because there is you know, something about being introduced to the desire to deal with error and they're up for it and they're saying, right, we're ready for the fight. We're ready to contend for the faith. Um, and again, that doesn't, it depends on personality, it depends on, on background. Uh, and it can draw the best and the worst out of people. Uh, but uh, people who by nature relish contention, who relish fights, people who are aggressive, people who, are just, who just like arguing, you, know, you get those type of people also. And so you have to, you have to temper that. And if you can't temper it yourself, if you're that type of personality, then you need to say to the person next to you, dear brother, dear sister, can you help me with this? Uh, because it can cause problems. So whether it's on the one hand a fearfulness that says, well, I'm prepared to tolerate this uh, that's going on, or whether it's a kind of a quarrelsome person who says, well, I love the confrontation, bring it on. Uh, we do have to be on our guard. We have to be on our guard because if it is the latter, if it's the, I love the confrontation, bring it on. You can fa uh, fall foul of, uh, to the danger 
of being swallowed up by the interest in or the potential delight of controversy. And sometimes people go looking for it. You know, they go looking for it in the internet to find out who's going wrong, who said what, and where they're saying it. You know, all to bring it to people's attention to say, you know, we need to be fighting about this. And so we need to, we need to be reminded that the invitation, the exhortation to contend is not, you will notice in the text, if you have it open before you, it is not to contend against, but to contend for. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now surely that means if we say this is true, we have to say, and that is false. And so you know, you've got to contend for that. You know, if somebody says, it's okay to have women preaching, it's okay to have women bishops, it's okay to have women in authority in the church. And we say, well, that's, that's not true. And it's not true in the basis of what God says about roles and, you know, who fulfills those roles. That's not true. And so those folks are saying, well, you know, we're happy to go along with that. We have to say it's false. And we have to be ready to uh, contend uh, for those things and to stand up for them. Uh, but the tenor, and that, that, this is the important point, uh, the, the tenor and the tone in which we do contend um, is vitally important. It does have to be, as Jude says, uh, in a loving manner. And as Paul says, as we have seen from Corinthians and again in Galatians, um, it has to be in a loving uh, manner. And again, the history of the church from the very beginning bears testimony to this danger. So if you just turn over uh, in your Bibles to the next book, the book of Revelation, and you'll see in Revelation chapter 2, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. Uh, and it runs along the, the lines of, of this particular warning. So you really need to turn over a page or two, but um, if Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus, uh, addressing to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your labor, and your patient, and uh, that you cannot bear those who are evil. I note that phrase, you can't bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So far, so good. Okay, ticking the right boxes. First three. I know that you've persevered, have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. Even better. And then first four. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I beloved, notice carefully, he commends them for their ability to distinguish between truth and error. But he says, the tragedy is that it would seem that in, that in being consumed by this, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, distinguish between truth and error, being consumed by that, that has so swallowed you up that you've now begun 
to lose sight of your first love, the love you had at first. Uh, and so sometimes the contention and the fighting and, you know, distinguishing truth and error can be the be-all and end-all to the extent that you actually lose sight of Christ and his love and manifesting that love. So what I hope we can see as we come here to verses uh, 20 and 21 is that the, the best reply to the scoffers, the best reply to these folks who creep in, is not so much a clever argument. The best reply to the scoffers is a transformed life. Uh, we'll see that with our studies in the Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. We'll see it also uh, again on Sunday evening with Second uh, Timothy. Uh, so what I'm saying is, you know, the best reply to the scoffers is basically twofold. On the one hand, yes, we have to contend for the faith. So yes, there has to be argument, if you like. It has to be a thoroughly upholding of the faith, dealing with error uh, as it comes and as it raises its ugly head. But not only to contend for the faith, but actually to live out the faith. To, to live it. And that's so important. And what we have in these two verses are four marks of those who are called to live out the faith. And the four marks are seen in the four verbs. Building, praying, keeping, and looking. Now, incidentally, amongst the verbs, there is only one imperative. And that is the verb to keep. Keep yourselves. The others are expressed differently. So if we, if we tweak the order a little bit, we'll see how the other verbs help us to understand how it is that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. So we could obviously start with the first verb in verse 19, building, and go on from there. Uh, but hopefully this little tweak will help us to, uh, to grasp what Jude is saying here on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's jump to verse 20 and we'll look at this tonight and we'll come to the other uh, three verbs next week, God willing. So uh, verse 20, let's just think about keeping yourselves in the love of God. In other words, he says... You know, stay where you are. If you love Jesus Christ, you know, that's the base where you stay. That's, your, that's where you're standing. Stay where you are. In Jesus, you have been brought into the circle of God's amazing love. You know, stay there. You know, stay in that orbit of God's amazing love. God has called you. You are his beloved in Jesus. You have been kept in and for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as John says in his uh, first epistle here in his love, this is love, he says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. So the love of God to which Jude refers... The love of God in which we are kept is, as we have often said, an initiative-taking love. God's love is 
an initiative taking love. Most of the time, I brought this out when we looked at love in 1 Corinthians 13 and again when, a couple of weeks ago when we introduced the fruit of the Spirit. But most of the time we think about love or loving someone, uh, we almost inevitably you know, respond to something that we find attractive in the other person. So our love for them is in response to who and what they are. But God's love for us doesn't operate on that basis. God has loved us in Jesus Christ, not on the basis of how attractive we are, because we're not. He doesn't love us on the basis of how good we are, because there's none good. Or how conscientious we are about trying to set aside what is wrong in our lives. God loves us because he loves us. It's amazing love. Now how are we to keep ourselves in the love of God? Where can we be helped in that? Well, if you just uh, you know, flick over then to John's Gospel. John chapter 15 for a moment. We have the record of Jesus using the, the picture of the fine in the branches. You know, the, the passage, you know, Jesus says, I am the fine, you are the branches. And uh, if you just look down at verse 9, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? As the Father loved me, so also I have loved you. The love between the Father and Son. That's, that's the measure, Jesus says, of my love for you. And so that's an amazing thought. Then what does he go on to say? You'd see it there in four words in English. He says, abide in my love. Okay, as the Father Love me, I also love you. Abide in my love. What's Jude saying in his little epistle? Jude is saying the same thing. Keep yourself in the love of God. And you say, but Billy, how do you do that? Well, look at verse 10 of John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The Lord Jesus Christ came to do the Father's will. And you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the prospect of all that was before Him, He sweat great drops of blood and He is crying uncontrollably. These huge Sobs, you know, crying out, you know, Father, if there is if there's any way to accomplish this redemption without all of this, you know, please find it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I beloved, it, if we think about this, you realize that the big problem with these folks in Jude who were ungodly. 
is that they were perverting the grace of God and they were turning it into a license for immorality. So you can go, you can go back to Jude again. And their argument basically went like this. If you see it there in um, verse 4, they're the un, these ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, their argument went like this. The grace of God is such that he sets us free from our sins. Okay, and so since we are free from our sins, we can do whatever we want. So we can be whatever we want. That's the immensity of his grace. You say, but people would never say that. But that's what people are actually saying in so-called Christian churches. I can be whatever I want to be. You know, so you affirm my trans identity. And you get churches, there was a church when I went down to um, London for uh, you know, the conference back in June, passing the church that had up, we, we, are, we are a... Uh, an all-inclusive church, that was it. And there's a church in, in Liverpool who parked the, the car a few weeks ago. And uh, it's over quite close to the Anglican Cathedral. But it says on it again, we, we are an inclusive church. It has the rainbow you know, on the sign. So you can be whatever you want to be. Why? Because God's a God of love. God's a God of grace. And you can shack up with whoever you want to shack up with. Because God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. And so don't be thinking that, you know, this is outlandish stuff. You know, this is happening today on our doorstep. Just like these people argued. Be whatever you want to be. My friends, nothing could actually be further from the truth. The idea that God loves us just the way we are is wrong. You know... After Adam fell, God has only loved one person just the way he was, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So God loves us despite the way we are, and he calls us onto himself despite the way we are. Now, when people come up against this notion of keeping the commandments, they think here, hold on a minute, there must be something wrong here, Billy, because that sounds like legalism. It's not legalism. We don't do this because we have to do it. We don't do it because we have to be saved. When we are saved, we want to do these things because we love to do it. We're now new creatures. Keeping the commandments of God on account of the love of God by the enabling of the Spirit of God is not easy, obviously. We need the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to keep ourselves in the love of God. Because we live as believers in a battleground. We're in the front line of the battle. Temptation is everywhere, every day. And the inclinations of our hearts are still sinful inclinations. We're not the finished product. We're still a work in progress. We have been redeemed we have been set in a new department, if you like, but we 
are still living within the context of, you know, a fallen world, fallen bodies. And in responsibility of keeping ourselves in the love of God, well, we need to, you know, do what Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Keep my commandments. You know, they're all safeguards. You know, for example, how do you keep yourself married? You know, for those of us that are married, how do you keep yourself married? By being true to your covenant. You know, I said, I will. I said, I do. You know, it's not legalism. You know, it's, I want to do it. I love my bride. And so it's a covenant-keeping love, and it's the same here. Uh, so there's no, no collision between love and obedience. In fact, he says, if you love me, you will show it in your obedience. Now, we sung in our, our opening hymn, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Now, when you were singing that, did any of you say, boy, that's, that's some promise. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. How are you going to manage to be faithful to that promise? Well, the hymn writer helps us with that. If you, if you, if you just turn to the hymn that we were singing, you'll see it. And the second verse, so it was 400 and what? 463. So, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. How are we going to manage to be faithful to that promise? The hymn writer says in the second verse, Oh, let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. True. Is that true? True. Unless we're living in a different universe. You know, every, every day we're tempted. Every day dazzle. Every day the alluring sights, sounds, and pictures. The evil one putting thoughts in our minds that concur with our sinful expectations. And the hymn writer concludes, if you look at verse 3, Oh, let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still above the storms of passion, the murmurs of self-will. You see, beloved, we need to hear the voice of God. We need the Bible because in the Bible, we hear God's voice. We hear God speaking to us. We come to church, obviously, because we want to hear God's voice. We want the Spirit of God to minister to us. Because these passions that are in my heart, uh, and they're in your heart too. You know, we'll be saying on Sunday, you know, Paul's exhortation to Timothy, flee, flee youthful lusts. And you think, well, that's a good exhortation to a young man in the ministry. But here, see, the older you get, uh, and some of you are older than myself, but like at 65, there are still youthful lusts in there. 
You know, there, there's the there's the young uh, 18, 19 year old cage behind this old frame. Uh, those youthful lusts. Uh, let's not, you know, you know, think that this is easy. The passions are there. The passions are in the heart. The storms that rage around me, in me, the murmurs in my soul. And so you see, friends, notice this is not a solo exercise. Okay, what does he say? Look at it again in the text. Keep yourselves, plural, not keep yourself. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's why we need each other. Why we need fellowship. Why we need meetings like this in the middle of the week. Again, we'll see more of this on Sunday evening, God willing. But isolation. Isolation is a dreadful situation to find ourselves in. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8, that striking statement Solomon makes, there is one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother. What a picture. There is one alone. You know, the, the nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, the uninvolved man, the solo flyer. I don't need church. You know, I don't need God's people. What does Solomon go on to say in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10? He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one fall, the other will lift them up. But woe to him who, who is alone when he falls. He's no one to help him. And so build yourselves up. We have to be encouraging one another in the Lord. So with that said as the imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, we will return to these other verbs, God willing, next week. Picking up in verse 20 with build yourselves up in your most holy faith.